Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Imagine if you're a senior citizen in Florida uh, who hasn't been able to see your grandkids in months because of this virus. Or if you live in Pennsylvania or Michigan or any battleground state, any state in this republic for that matter, um, and you lost a loved one or you lost a friend or, you know, you're stretching because you have to work from home and your kids are learning from home. The president has not shown a capacity to empathize, to suggest that there might be some sort of national moment of mourning. All the things that we would expect a president of the United States to do to sort of turn this moment of dread and horror into a collective moment of unity. He's done none of it. The nation is less than six weeks away from a major election. More than 200,000 Americans, meanwhile, have died from this pandemic. Washington, D.C. is fixated on another bruising battle over a Supreme Court vacancy. No better time to talk to NBC White House correspondent Jeff Bennett. So do stay with us. This show airs on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Find us and rate us. And stay tuned for exciting news on upcoming radio coverage. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is none other than Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent for NBC News. Jeff previously covered the White House for NPR. Before that, he was all over Capitol Hill and national politics for New York One News and, and the former Time Warner Cable. Uh, in a past life, I had the privilege of working with Jeff uh, on, on NPR's Weekend Edition. And, sir, I'm going to plug it forever that you helped me launch this show. So I am eternally grateful to you. How are you? <laughs> it was a proud moment. I'm doing well, Robin. It's great to talk with you again, man. I know that must be at the bottom, at the very bottom, the footer of your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. It, 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 Down it ranks, with your summer right camp. Top. Yeah. Shucks. Uh, I don't even know where to start. You had just attended uh, the the uh, the the pallbearers, the casket, the funeral reception, lying in state of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court justice who just succumbed to pancreatic cancer at the age of 87. And the mood in Washington D.C. is somewhere between kind of uh, mourning and maybe a fear of and of fear and loathing of of the battle that's ahead. Tell me, kind of, yeah. give me a temperature check. Yeah, it, it, it was somber, um, uh, reflective, and I, I think people there's a certain foreboding uh, given that I think people know what is to come. And even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish, as articulated to her granddaughter, was that the next president nominate her replacement, President Trump, Senate Republicans are pushing forward. And the president on Saturday afternoon, he says, is going to announce his nominee. And we expect that the Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee, is going to hold confirmation hearings in the first half of October. The goal, the tentative goal, at least right now, is to hold a confirmation vote on this seat before the election. There are a number of reasons for that, um, not least of which is that Republicans aren't entirely sure if President Trump's going to win re-election. And of course, this entire thing gets more fraught if Joe Biden wins and the White House and Senate Republicans are pushing through a Supreme Court nominee in a lame duck session. Contrary to popular belief, there isn't all that much formal instruction about the Supreme Court in the Constitution or going back to the time of our founding fathers. I understand that it's fluctuated anywhere from five justices to 10 uh, just after the Civil War. It settled back at nine. FDR failed to, uh, I guess, clear what he called reactionary justices out in the wake of his uh, New Deal reforms in packing the court. And it has stood since it at nine justices. Yeah, for the last 150 years or so. And even though, I, you know, some blue checks on Twitter, as we, as we so often say, uh, and, and Democrat, Democratic uh, the, uh, pro progressive activists have suggested that if 
Republicans move forward, then Democrats should pack the court and turn it into a court of 11 or 16, 17, pick your number. Joe Biden and Senate Democrats, at least for right now, seem to be pushing back on that. I, I, I think the calculation, certainly for Joe Biden, is that that's not something that he wants to campaign on. It's not something he wants to be asked about. It's not a door that he wants to be able to give this president um, to further suggest that Joe Biden is somehow a Trojan horse and that, you know, if he's elected, he's going to do the bidding of the quote unquote radical left. Um, so right now, what Democrats are trying to do is that they're trying to make clear to the American people what a right-leaning Supreme Court would mean for a generation to come, because that's what's going to happen um, if or when President Trump gets his nominee confirmed. And so what that means is the Affordable Care Act gets gutted. It could potentially mean that Roe v. Wade is overturned. It means that if the court sees cases related to gun rights or climate change or affirmative action or marriage equality, or, or just name your list of things that progressives care about, then a lot of those rights that people have taken for granted, a lot of the policies that people just assume exist because they've always existed, could be undone. And so I think that's the challenge that Democrats have right now, is that there's always been this asymmetry where Republicans care more about the court than Democrats do. Now Democrats are trying to make clear to people that this is something that 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 people who, who align themselves with, with progressives and with liberal causes really need to care about and focus on and vote on come November. Uh, what do you think if the White House, as expected, gets its nominee and the Senate does run it through either before or after the election, that this is clearly being done against the will of uh, around, you know, what, 50 Democrats or just just under. Uh, there were a couple of Republicans that stepped forward, Susan Collins, Senator Murkowski of Alaska, who said that we wouldn't support it. But even after that, they do have the numbers, including Vice President Pence, to push it through. Who do you think gets, the, the you know, in, in pure, let's say, reductionist terms, who gets the bigger wave out of it? Is there a bigger blue wave that comes out of that anger or a red wave that comes out of that vindication that Trump delivered you know, a generational majority for conservatives? You know, I think it's I think Democrats stand to benefit here. And, and here's why. The president has not been able to, and frankly, has never shown a willingness to reach out to speak to to represent more than his base. Um, and so even when it comes to the courts, I'm not entirely sure that that this seat is something that he's going to be able to convince a wide swath of voters that they need to vote for him on beyond, you know, his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, where 200,000 Americans have died effectively on his watch, his his statements about civil unrest, um, just his overall demeanor and, and deportment. And frankly, you know, polling has shown, and this is just in, you know, the last couple of, of, of uh, days or so, that, you know, if you frame it as, do you care about balance on the court, then Americans by and large do think it's appropriate that the next president should get to pick uh, the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so a lot of this, I think, will come down to the ways in which Democrats talk about this, the way it's messaged, and to not allow President Trump to, to frame this entire debate. Um, because he, he does have that effect. I mean, one, he's president, so he gets sort of an outsized influence in that regard. Everyone just kind of focuses on everything a president says and does. Uh, but, but but because of sort of his bellicose style and the sort of like torrent of disinformation and mistruths and, and lies and all of that, he has he has a way of owning the narrative. 
Uh, and it's really hard for, for Joe Biden, for anyone really, to sort of break through all that. Why is it so taboo? And you quoted a, a an NBC News piece on Senate Democrats downplaying the talk of drastic changes for the Supreme Court. All of this stuff about warning and telegraphing people and Senator Warren out there and Biden's uh, uh, deputies and Confederates out there saying, you understand the severity of this. But then what? OK, suppose let's say let's let's take the thought experiment. The Senate shifts Democrat. Biden wins by a substantial, a decent majority. The House is kept. Maybe the majority there is grown by Democrats. They can go into February saying we now have a mandate. And yet yeah. you have a president who, who who left maybe in popularity, who had appointed a third of the justices to the Supreme Court. So why is it so taboo for them to say, actually, we should be able to appoint justices, not just because of what happened in the final 50 days of the Trump presidency, but going back to the original sin with what happened with Obama and Merrick Garland and, and Senator Mitch McConnell thwarting that uh, in the final year of Obama's presidency. Yeah, it's a great point. Democrats could make the case that there were two stolen seats and so that they make up for it with two more seats that they add to the court or three more seats that they add to the court. I mean, I, th- I think that at the core of your question is sort of this persistent persistent question, which is, why won't Democrats get tough? I mean, Republicans have shown that they care in many ways less about governing and more about ruling. Um, and, and, and Democrats generally, because they tend to be more intellectually honest and do care about governing, haven't been able uh, to go beyond sort of the empty threats. I mean, Nancy Pelosi said that, you know, she might impeach the president again to kind of, to kind of gum up the works of the Senate so that it wouldn't be so easy mm. to confirm a nominee. They also said at one point that they might um, withhold the votes on government funding. Well, just yesterday, they voted on a government funding measure, right? So time and time again, what you see are Democrats issue these these threats and, and say what they're going to do and how, you know, this is the end of the world and the whole thing, but yet it never seems to be backed up, <laughs> uh, backed up by action. So if President, or rather, if Joe Biden does win the presidency, and he has at his left flank people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley and just, you know, the, the sort of the, the super progressive wing of the party um, who are urging him to do these kind of things and to get tough. I think I think that could be really, really in, influential because Joe Biden naturally is not that kind of guy. I mean, when he mm. when his term was over, if you go back and check C-SPAN, you can watch the the really sort of poignant words between him and Mitch McConnell talking about how they were friends. And McConnell talks about how, you know, he and Joe Biden were on opposite ends of the aisle. But, you know, McConnell says, I could always trust your word. Uh, and the relationship that Lindsey Graham and Joe Biden had, I think, is pretty well known, apart from the fact that Lindsey Graham said all sorts of horrible things about Hunter Biden during the impeachment. Um, but, but Joe Biden's sort of natural inclination is to want to find ways to compromise and work together, even as Republicans obstructed him and obstructed President Obama at every turn. Mm. We're talking to Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent at NBC News. I have checked Real Clear Politics, and uh, the polling average has Biden ahead by about seven points with what is it, six weeks left until November 3rd? Yeah. Uh, what is a disproportionate attention being given now to states that, you know, it's very fascinating to go back and look at the states that Obama won when the nation was in a financial crisis in 2008, that you didn't expect these states to go easily to uh, a Democratic newcomer and everything. And he pretty resoundingly won against uh, John McCain in 2008. And there are many Democrats out there that are romancing this possibility, not just North Carolina and Georgia, but maybe, maybe we take the ruby red likes of Texas. 
Yeah, maybe. Beto O'Rourke did fairly well against uh, Ted Cruz, even though he lost. Um, and so the turn Texas blue effort is something that I think Democrats have been talking about since, I don't know, at least I've been covering it at least since 2006, 2008. Um, but this could potentially, who knows, be the be the year that it happens. You know, one of the things that we're paying close attention to is the states where Biden is doing well and could potentially win, if not for some sort of, you know, hinky thing happening with the ballots. And so, like, for instance, in Pennsylvania, there's this issue with naked ballots, which could be the new hanging chad. Everybody hanging remembers chads. the hanging right. chads from Florida in 2000. And the issue there is that Florida is now requiring that if you mail your ballot in, if you vote absentee, if you get a mail-in ballot, you have to put your ballot in a so-called secrecy envelope. It's the thing you put your ballot in, you sign it, and the secrecy envelope or privacy envelope is designed to preserve anonymity and prevent tampering. You then put that secrecy envelope into a postmark envelope and then you send it back. But, you know, when people get their mail-in ballots, first of all, you've got two envelopes, you've got all these mailers, you know, all these sort of fill-in papers. Usually it's in two languages. It's hard to make sense of. People don't, don't read it very carefully and they just sign the ballot, put it back in the envelope, and mail it back. Well, that is called a naked ballot, and those ballots, mm. a Supreme Court in Pennsylvania now says, uh, can be thrown out. And there is an election official in Philadelphia, a Democrat, who estimates that 100,000 people, 100,000 voters could be disenfranchised because of this naked ballot issue in Pennsylvania. Mm. And Pennsylvania is a state that Donald Trump won by 44,000 votes in, 2000, in 2016. So you can imagine how this is a, a huge issue. And then in Florida, there's all sorts of issues with disinformation, uh, Spanish language disinformation, QAnon, all the people who sort of hang out in the dark recesses of Facebook. Um, and so that's an issue, too, where, where Joe Biden would like to be doing better uh, with Hispanic voters, Latino voters. But then there's this sort of unknown factor of disinformation, misinformation that is really hard to campaign against if you can't fully get your get your arms around it. Do you suspect that there is going to be a result by midnight or worst case scenario by the following sunrise? Or is this going to linger out kind of 2000 style? Yeah, you know, I think we at NBC are trying to educate our viewers that election night could be election week. Um, and so will we know at 11 o'clock on the night of November 3rd? Probably not. I mean, of course, the huge caveat here is that if there is a huge turnout and Joe Biden's victory is resounding, then then sure. Um, but given the pandemic and you have all of these people voting by mail, it takes time to count those ballots. Some states allow the ballots to be counted if they're received after Election Day, so long as they're postmarked on Election Day. So you have to account for that. Um, and I, I think the real danger here, and it's only a danger because Donald Trump has made it so, is that if it looks as if Donald Trump is winning the night of November 3rd, and then, you know, two days later, when all the votes are counted, Joe Biden emerges as the victor. The Trump campaign is going to launch all sorts of legal challenges and, and, and court action no matter what. But if that happens and if the margin is slim and if there are issues like with these naked ballots or with the voting access, then we could be in for a real nightmare where, you know, this gets contested. It's it's brutal. It's partisan. And then it goes potentially to the Supreme Court that the president has just you know, named a, 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 a justice to that has this sort of artificial, I say artificial because as Democrats see it, two seats were stolen, but an artificial conservative tilt to it that then hands Donald Trump the presidency, much like we saw with Bush v. Gore in 2000. 
You know, Jeff, after a special election in 2017, uh, DNC Chairman Tom Perez tweeted, uh, let me be clear, we won in Alabama and Virginia because black women led us to victory. Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party, and we can't take that for granted, period. Yes, it was a special situation. Yes, the GOP uh, 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 nominee for that seat to take over uh, Jeff Sessions is... Uh, longtime Senate seat was a flawed candidate, and uh, Doug Jones very, very bizarre for a Democrat uh, with the full backing of the party to win that seat. But it did illustrate, it did put in sharp relief when you do get black turnout, especially in the Deep South, how powerful it could be. Yeah, that's right. And and across the board, when more people vote, Democrats do better. And that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump, eons ago, I guess it was months ago, it feels like eons said in an interview with uh, some conservative outlet, probably Fox News, he said, you know, if we have mail-in voting at high levels, you'll never have a Republican elected in this country ever again. And so, yes, Tom Perez was correct. Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party, and that has been the case cycle after cycle. One of the the ways the Trump campaign is trying to cut in to the Democrats standing among black voters is by focusing on black men. In the 2016 race, black men, some of them broke for Donald Trump in ways that both the Clinton campaign and Trump campaign did not expect. A lot of that had to do with the fact, uh, with the ways in which um, people viewed Hillary Clinton. It also had to do with Donald Trump's uh, approach when he used this phrase, you know, what do you have to lose? That That struck a lot of people as offensive and racist. But it also, I think, resonated with some people who said, okay, he might have a point. You know, Democrats have taken the black vote for granted. And so there were there were a number of uh, mostly black men who broke for Donald Trump uh, in ways that were helpful to him. And I think this time around, Joe Biden and Democrats have their work cut out for them in, in, in trying to win back those voters, those black voters who broke for Donald Trump. Um, is it enough to put Kamala Harris as, as his VP? No, of course not. He has to articulate policies and has to articulate a vision um, that that appeals to that demographic in much the same way he would have to do for any other group. But on the Fuhrer, on on Breonna Taylor, which is very much in the news today, and George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, is that going to translate, do you think, into kind of a a sense of of defeatism or what's the point? Or is it going to energize people on balance to go to the polls? I think overall it'll be energizing. And, and and part of the reason why it'll be energizing is because of the way President Trump messages and talks about these issues. He views law enforcement as one of his natural constituencies, right? So he's always going to side with them. But even, you know, calling protesters thugs, um, siding with those who want Confederate statues to stand, um, the sort of weird stops and starts at police reform. And the president has given up on that entirely. But what he does is he pivots and talks about criminal justice reform. Well, police reform and criminal justice reform are two very different things. And then also the way he talks about, you know, in Joe Biden's America, you're going to have all of these thugs and protesters and Antifa coming into your suburbs and bothering, you know, you perfect, um, you know, virginal uh, American suburban housewives, as the president puts it. So, you know, to the degree that that is off-putting and to the degree that that, I think, pushes people to the polls, I I think, you know, the president hasn't fully thought through sort of the unintended consequences of talking about the civil unrest and the push for social justice that we've seen since the police killing of George Floyd. You know, we're uh, because of what happened, the bombshell with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's uh, conveniently, I think, downplaying the other 50-ton elephant in the room, which is COVID, this unprecedented pandemic and economic crisis this year. You had 
unemployment shoot up to the mid-teens for much of the spring and the summer. You had 200,000 people dead. You have parents livid that their kids aren't able to attend school. They're not able to see their parents in assisted living facilities. You would think that that would translate into a more reflexive kind of give no chance to this president to get reelected. But even then, he has really high numbers, especially among the GOP base. Yeah, you would think, right? Especially after we learned from the Bob Woodward book, that the president for months had intentionally misled, deliberately deceived the American people about the severity and the danger uh, of this crisis. And yet, you know, p- the people's views about Donald Trump are mostly baked in. If you love him, you love him. If you hate him, you hate him. Um, and just this just this week, the president was campaigning and, and, and he has said nothing substantial about the, the, the sort of the really just grave milestone, 200,000 American Americans dead from this this virus. Instead, what he said was, you know, nobody gets it. He talked about how children under 18 are almost immune. He's going back, really, and talking about this virus in the way that he talked about it back in January. And so imagine if you're a senior citizen in, in Florida uh, who hasn't been able to see your grandkids in months because of this virus, or, you know, if you're a, a, if you live in Pennsylvania or Michigan or any battleground state, any state in this republic, for that matter, um, and you lost a loved one or you lost a friend or, you know, you're you're trying to you're stretching because you have to work from home and your kids are learning from home. Um, the president has not shown a capacity uh, to empathize, to to suggest that there might be some sort of national moment of mourning. All the things that we would expect a, a president of the United States to do to sort of turn this moment of dread and horror into a collective moment of unity. He's done none of it. Um, and, and frankly, he's he's gone back to talking about it the way he talked about it at the beginning to suggest that this is some sort of hoax that Democrats are making too much of to hurt him politically. He personalizes everything and he's personalized this virus. And because it it hurts him politically, he's downplayed it to the point of suggesting that, as he put it, nobody has died. Nobody, nobody gets it. It, it hurts almost nobody. Um, which is just a really, really a deeply offensive way to talk about a virus that is that has killed 200,000 people at least. We are on the brink of having the first uh, debate between these two candidates take place Tuesday, September 29th at Case Western University and the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Very important swing state of Ohio. Uh, moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News selects these topics, and I'm, I'm reading them on the Fox News website. The Trump and Biden records, the Supreme Court, COVID-19, the economy, the integrity of the election, and this really bulged out at me when I saw it phrased as such, race and violence in our cities. Uh, it seems to be kind of uh, more than suggestive that that race and violence are inextricably linked. Right. Yeah. And he's using, I mean, Fox, Chris Wallace, of course, works at Fox News. He's using the Fox News framing, uh, which is, of course, not at all. This, it fails to capture the, the underlying issue. I mean, there's violence in some cities and there has been, been violent interactions between uh, police and protesters because of the excessive use of force by police against mostly black men, but also black women, um, people of color writ large. Um, and this is a president who time and time again says there is no systemic uh, racism in policing, I think in part because he doesn't fully understand it. I think you know systemic racism doesn't suggest that every police officer is actively racist. All it means is that they work within a system that is inherently racist. And it's not even an issue of whether or not the president believes it. It is a thing that is so. And we know that um, just based on the sheer numbers, on the, on the data. Uh, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Chris Wallace 
frames those questions and the degree to which Joe Biden is on it, frankly, and, and can disabuse people of these false notions um, and and try to bring the conversation back to terms that I think fully reflect the lived experience of so many people in this country and that it's not this sort of issue of violence happening in cities disconnected from the sort of larger pernicious issue of police use of force. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Jeff Bennett. He is White House correspondent for NBC News. Jeff, uh, also, do you still occasionally uh, guest host C-SPAN's Washington Journal? No, I haven't done that in years, but I, I miss it. I'm um, just getting to talk to any and everybody on a Saturday morning calling in about uh, you know issues of the day, but I haven't done that in, uh, I don't know, th- three or four years. Well, it's always inspiring when I'm in there and I have you know Capitol Hill in the background, and it's such an a, a incredible uh, vista early on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. And it does have me wondering about statehood for D.C., especially if the Democrats take the Senate, the Democrats take the White House. Is this less of an exotic prospect than it kind of it used to be? And by extension, what about Puerto Rico? Yeah. I, I, well, here's the thing. I'm interested to see the degree to which Democrats actually, if they win, if Joe Biden wins and if Democrats take the Senate, the degree to which Democrats actually do the thing that has been on their blue sky list for decades. And that's statehood for D.C., statehood for Puerto Rico, because you do have this issue where the Senate is is uneven. It's We're almost minority. Well, not almost. We are minority rule where people are concentrated in, in states like New York and California uh, but in other places on the coasts. Um, and yet in the sort of in the more sparsely populated um, center of the country, uh, they, they do have a sort of a, a disproportionate impact and pull in our in our politics. And of course, give, granting statehood to, to D.C. and to Puerto Rico is one way to to get around that and to make up for it. But it's also true that no American should be living anywhere where they don't have full representation. Um, and so that's that's also a separate issue that I think Democrats care a lot about, which is, you know, if you are an American citizen and you pay taxes, your voice should be represented in Congress fully. Well, you saw Puerto Rico getting walloped by uh, that hurricane a couple of years ago and that uh, much of the country did feel disenfranchised, even though there are, uh, you know, you are citizens. You are a territory of the United States. You didn't quite feel first class citizenship there. And I wonder if that changed the debate, which has raged on there for 40, 50 years on whether statehood. Yeah, that's right. And the only reason why the president came around to suggesting that they get that billion, billions of dollars of relief aid that they needed is because he needs the votes of Puerto Ricans in Florida, right? It had really nothing to do with the Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. And the president had resisted giving them that additional aid for years, suggesting suggesting that you know it was mismanaged because it's Democrat leaning and the whole thing, and so yes, that I think that's one way around it. You give if you're an American territory, if you're an American district, what have you, um, you deserve full representation and you deserve a vote, so that when you know, God forbid, there are natural disasters or anything for that matter, um, and you need representation, you need influence, you have it, and it's not an issue of the value that you may or may not bring in an election year. You saw the optics of uh, children in cages and and the wall terminology and um, you know Salvadorian or Central American migrants being conflated, almost synonymized with with gangs and thugs and rapists and everything coming in. Um, and yet you look at the Latino, the Latinx population in the United States, and it's by no means monolithic. Trump is indeed 
very popular among uh, certain Cuban exiles in South Florida. I'm amazed, having covered them, uh, you know, in my book, that uh, there are people who were discriminated against when they came in on the Mariel boat lift or when they came in in the 60s or 70s, who then tend to become more reactionary over the decades, saying that no, we are we are now Americans, and you should in fact deport. Uh, other Cuban exiles who were here. You should, in fact, deport Mexicans or Guatemalans who came here illegally, even as some of these people came here uh, on on boat lifts or or, or semi legally. Yeah, it's a great point. I think the sort of different political and cultural identities within the, the Latin diaspora, and to bring it back to something that we talked about at the outset, the Supreme Court. Um, one of the people the president is considering for his Supreme Court pick is Judge Barbara Lagoa who is the daughter of Cuban Cuban immigrants. She herself is Cuban-American, has deep roots in the Miami Cuban, Cuban community. And President Trump, saying the quiet part out loud on Fox News earlier this week, said of her, I don't know her. I hear she's terrific. She's Hispanic, and she's from Florida. I love Florida. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, if he settles on her, I think it's certainly an election year play. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you cannot, you cannot sort of apply the broad brushstroke frankly, to any ethnic or racial group, but certainly not to um, American Latinos who are, you know, be, being Puerto Rican is not the same as, as being Mexican, is not the same as being from El Salvador, is not the same as being from Cuba. And certainly in Florida politics, I think that's most pronounced um, with Florida's Cuban-American community. How does that play out in Texas, though? You have Democratic strategists for the longest time saying that this is bound to turn over. I mean, after all, Virginia used to be a dark red state. Clinton didn't used to win Virginia, and now it's it's decidedly purple. Uh, you don't hear many people talking about it as a likely swing state this time around. As, as kind of end tends toward infinity, aren't you going to see Texas resemble Northern Virginia and California more, especially with the changing population? Or you look at North Carolina and the research triangle and the influx of, of people moving from, from blue states. Yeah, right. That's true. Especially as California, unfortunately, becomes more uninhabitable, whether it's because of the fires or because of rising housing prices and it just becomes you can't afford to live there anymore. People are moving more to Austin and different parts of Texas. Um, but it's also true that, that Texas's Latino community tends to be younger. So the degree to which Biden and Democrats more broadly can appeal to younger voters across the board, I think will be, will be beneficial to them in helping, you know, make an appeal to uh, Latino Texas voters. Uh, so again, you know, the president... Both, the, both President Trump and Joe Biden, I think, cannot take that, that voting block uh, for granted. Can you remember a president or presidential candidate in, in recent history, especially, who was so unwelcome in his home city and home state as, as Donald Trump? I mean, I think for all intents and purposes, as much as this guy was, you know, uh, he was synonymous with New York and, and kind of the limousine garish developer and, and everything else that he did in the stunts in the 80s and the 90s and the cameos, he's, he is probably the first Florida man president and presidential candidate because he's really not welcome in New York City anymore. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I'm thinking of the stunt that uh, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio pulled where he painted Black Lives Matter uh, in, in, outside the in, Trump in Tower. huge letters, yeah, in yellow paint outside Trump Tower. And the way the reason I use the word stunt is because that's that's what it was. I mean, I, I think he sort of co-opted the Black Lives Matter movement uh, to make a point about about President Trump. But the president hasn't really been back to that Fifth Avenue penthouse apartment very much. Part of it is because when he is there, they effectively have to shut down the street. I mean, they bring out the dump trucks 
and um, they block off that part of Fifth Avenue. Secret Service does for obvious security reasons. But it's also true that he's, you know, he's he's not really welcome there. Um, the president has, you know, he changed his home residence to Florida. He he votes by mail, even though he keeps suggesting falsely that there's some, you know, fraud involved. But he's twice voted by mail. Um, and when he leaves the presidency, he'll probably move to Florida. I would imagine that his uh, presidential library, whenever it's built, I'm sure there'll be one in Queens since that's where he was born. But I imagine if he had his druthers, it would be in Florida. Um, so, you know, he, he this is a president, president who goes where he is wanted. I mean, he... He golfs at his own properties. He eats at his own hotels. He does not really interact uh, with people who don't who don't like him. And because he's sort of persona non grata uh, among New Yorkers, he doesn't really go back to or interact very much with um, with folks back home, his New York home. Tell me what it's been like. I know it's been a dream of yours to become a, a TV correspondent, and you put in your dues since you transitioned away from radio a decade ago. You know, covering Capitol Hill at New York One, uh, going to NPR to cover. The Beltway and the White House, and now to be at a White House where there's an openly, oftentimes antagonistic relationship with what he calls the mainstream press. I mean, we saw this past week at a at a rally. He was he was kind of laughing, making light of the fact that you know MSNBC's Ali Velshi was hit by a rubber bullet. I mean, these are these are certain things that would have think were, were completely taboo just before his presidency. Yeah, they were, and and they and they should be. I'll I'll say this about President Trump: so much of that stuff is performative. He calls us fake news, and yet he talks to us off the record. He invites reporters into the Oval Office for chats. He doesn't do this so much anymore, but in the early days of his presidency, he would call reporters directly, including like Maggie Haberman, um, and you know give off the record guidance. And, and and you know every this is a president who talks to reporters on the record too. I mean, he makes himself available all the time, um, in part because he knows the value of of speaking to the press. And yet he calls us fake because he doesn't like our reporting. He doesn't like that he that we hold him to account. Um, and so, again, this is a president who personalizes everything. He sees the presidency as an extension of himself. He sees every federal agency as an extension of himself. Um, one of the reasons one of the reasons why he attacks Jeff Bezos of The Washington Post is because he doesn't understand that just because mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos owns The Washington Post, that he then doesn't direct the coverage of the Washington Post. He see because he, he President Trump sees it all as one and the same. And certainly, if, if Donald Trump ever bought a TV station or a newspaper, you can bet that the views reflected by that institution would be those of Donald Trump. Um, and so that I think is what has made everything about this presidency so different. In the early days, there were people who at least tried to provide some semblance of guardrails. Those people are mostly gone. And so what you see now are people working for this president who, for the most part, align themselves with the let Trump be Trump approach. And that's what he's doing. You know, if he if he is granted another four years in office, uh, I would imagine that a lot of those people would stick around in part because the universe of people who want to work at this White House, can work at this White House and would be vetted, I think, is, is relatively slim. Um, and so, you know, this is a president who was impeached for ab- abuse of power and continues, his critics say, to continue to do the same things that he was he was impeached for and, and use language and rhetoric that is way more divisive than even the sort of partisan bellicose rhetoric of 2016. Um, so this is a slowly encroaching, he keeps busting norms and then moving past that line. 
Um, and so, you know, it, it, I can't imagine what the next 40 days will bring, but we're all sort of buckled up for it. You know, Jeff, everything seems in the year 2020 has to get in line behind COVID and uh, this this uh, upcoming battle over the Supreme Court and the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, but let's not forget that also in the wake of impeachment, it's, he took out the military leader of Iran. And many people started this year thinking that it was going to be the incipients of a World War III with the Middle East. In fact, yeah. it's it's ending very differently. You didn't see much of a reaction from Iran. And Trump has been out there for most of September hailing uh, these, these deals between, say, the UAE and Bahrain and Israel. And is that an indicator for what might be expected in the future with Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and a grand bargain with, with Israel? What are you hearing or... To what extent can they leverage that for electoral gains? Well, I think they're, they're certainly trying to do that um, with the evangelical community. I mean, every, every chance the president gets, he talks about how they moved uh, the, the, the embassy um, to Jerusalem and, and all of that. You know, and, and to the degree that people thought there'd be World War III between the U.S. and Iran, um, people thought that, too, with the, the U.S. and North Korea. And then the president began his so-called love affair with Kim Jong-un and the, and the summits and all of that. Uh, you know, the, the foreign policy is it's a harder it's harder for me anyway to get a read on it um, because the president sort of engages and disengages um, sort of at will. And so, you know, you don't know that there that the, these plans and these peace accords are coming until they actually just sort of pop up. Mm. And and he credits his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, with doing all the hard work and heavy lifting. Of course, that's not the entire story. Um, but, you know, I, I will say the president, the one thing that he has been consistent on is saying that he wants to bring an end to sort of, you know, U.S. involvement in overseas conflict. And so, you know, drawing down troops from Afghanistan, drawing down troops from Iraq, I'm sure there are a host of unintended consequences related to both decisions of which I'm not, you know, f fully aware. Um, but the Trump doctrine such that it exists in terms of foreign policy is sort of reducing America's footprint abroad and letting other folks work out their stuff, you know, for lack of a better phrase. And so, I would hope that we that we would see that we would see more of that in the Trump and and Biden administration because that's certainly where um, uh, the sort of the American view stands uh, to do sort of less hmm. l you know less uh, uh, less foreign interference uh, among you know U.S. interests. Jeff, in the ten minutes or so we have left with you, I'd love for you to look into your crystal ball. And one thing that comes to mind here is. I'm still haunted by uh, what was called in the wake of Mitt Romney losing the 2012 election, the GOP autopsy, where Republican elders, I'm quoting Politico, drew up a blueprint for a kinder, more inclusive Republican Party. Uh, Donald Trump over Twitter tore that apart. And then just you know, three, four years later, he was the candidate of the party. Uh, suppose he does lose, whether he loses bigly or, or marginally, or if it's contested or drawn out. Does this have to you know this kind of reconciliation have to happen this um this idea that that you, you can't ignore the obvious that demographics are against you that you need to have a better message towards immigrants and a more expansive tent that maybe that this was just an aberration that trump was elected in 2016 and he in fact is not going to be the, the future of the party after this loss yeah or that you know republicans decide that they have to field better candidates you know, we the Republicans got a Donald Trump because they started with a Sarah Palin, um, right? And so what you've seen is this sort of push away from intellectualism toward cults of personality and people wanting to be entertained. 
Um, and so, you know, if, if Republicans are able, if there's any sort of autopsy, if Donald Trump loses, if there's any sort of autopsy to be done, it's, you know, how did Republicans end up in 2016 having so many candidates, most of whom weren't serious candidates, like a Ben Carson and a Herman Cain and a Donald Trump um, and uh, Carly Fiorina, although I'm sure she, you know, considered herself to be a serious candidate. Um, and, and, you know, sort of a middle of the road guy like Jeb Bush um, didn't stand a shot. <laughs> you know, Car- Marco Rubio didn't have a shot. Ted Cruz, whatever people think about him personally, didn't didn't have a chance. Um, and, and so I think there has to be a lot of, for Republicans, if Donald Trump loses, a lot of heavy lifting and hard thinking about that. If he wins, then, you know, ultimately, whatever lesson learned, whatever lesson people need to learn is sort of thrown out the window by a win. <laughs> um, and, and then the other side of it will be what Democrats have to figure out, how it was that they didn't get, how they, you know, how they ended up not nominating a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket, for that matter, or any number of candidates who were, you know, eminently qualified and also sort of, you know, captured the zeitgeist, but for whatever reason, weren't able to win the nomination. Um, and so there's so much to be learned, I think, from what's going to happen 40 days from now. Um, but if Donald Trump loses and, and Republicans lose the Senate, um, one of the things I'll be watching for is do we see a resurgence of the Mitt Romney, Jeff Flake sort of moderate wing, whatever of it is left, <laughs> uh, the Lincoln Project, never Trumper wing of the Republican Party? Do they are they like a phoenix that rises from the ashes? Who are the torchbearers for that in elected office right now? It's very possible that Susan Collins in Maine uh, loses her seat. There's a lot of money that's sluiced into that race since the RBG passing. Um, I, I don't, I, I can't quite name who, except on the sidelines, you might have a bill. Gosh, who was Vice President Quayle's chief of staff? I mean, some people who write columns and oh, like and, Bill Crystal, yeah. Bill Crystal or or uh, or Mr. Frum in the Atlantic. I mean, I, I sense that many of these people are in the sidelines. They're not in the, the the mix. Maybe a Mitt Romney, but he's already been tried as a presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I probably have to like look to the House, right, to to look at to some up and comers. Um, but yeah, I think I think there are any number of people who, like a chameleon, would probably change their stripes if Donald Trump want, lost uh, to suggest that. You know, they supported him because he was a Republican president and, you know, it's important to support the the the, the standard bearer of your party. Uh, but now they're just, you know, going to try to go along to get along. I, I could totally see that happening um, because, frankly, we've seen that already where, where people uh, tend to have sort of, you know, situational ethics uh, in, in, and try to have situational uh, precedent for, for things to sort of, you know, so that they always come out on the right side. From one reporter to another reporter, sir, what are we short shrifting? What do you see, uh, kind of with your gimlet eye, everything that's out there that should be covered more at night? You, you tell your your family and your friends that, gosh, I, I I wish this would get more coverage on my beat or around my beat. I think one of the things that we sort of take for granted, and I say we as reporters and political reporters in particular, is that everyone is focused on this race to the degree that we are. And I think with the pandemic, with so many people out of work. Uh, with people concerned about, you know, their their aging parents who might be isolated and lonely, people who are concerned about their kids who are also isolated and lonely, who they also have to, you know, teach at home while they're also trying to hold down a job. People are not connected to this race in the ways that we think they are. A lot of people don't even know when Election Day is. Um, and so that's the thing that I think that, that we kind of have to remind ourselves uh, about is that, 
you know, we have to talk about the race and talk about the issues that matter. And we can't shorthand it because a lot of people aren't engaged because they frankly don't have the time to be. Even if they wanted to be, they just don't have the time. Um, and so that's one of the things I'm focused on. I'm also focused on sort of the the sort of lasting impact of this now six-month quarantine with the job loss, um, with the uh, sort of just emotional trauma and, and damage sustained from all of this, how it's going to affect our culture, how it will affect the next president if it has to be a Joe Biden. He talks so much about a healing for this country, you know, what that looks like. Will we ever fully honor the 200,000 lives that have been lost? Um, I'm focused on that as well. Um, and, and so, you know, those are some of the things that I'm just I'm sort of keeping an eye on as we do all this reporting day in and day out. Jeff, I got to ask you, are there any contenders for, for what D.C.'s name is going to be changed to? Clearly, Washington's football team is still a, a work in progress. But I heard everything from kind of v, veto state to gridlockistan. Do you guys uh, discuss what the names might be? Because certainly <laughs> it can't be Washington state. It would be redundant. Yeah, that's true. I, I haven't thought about that. I mean, right now we're somewhat we're so focused on naming Washington's football team. Is it going to be the Washington Warriors or the Washington Red Tails or whatever? I hadn't even thought about what the District of Columbia would be if they got statehood. Jeff Bennett, tri-state colossus. Not only do you see him in Virginia, but you see him in Delaware, in North Carolina, completely internationally known, White House <laughs> correspondent for NBC News. Sir, needless to say, you are always welcome on this show that you... Once again, you, you this monstrosity that you helped create. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's great talking to you, Robin, always. Thank you, Jeff. Full disclosure, special thanks to our engineer, John Valentine. This show airs on NPR One, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Find us and rate us gloriously, I hope. And stay tuned for exciting news on upcoming radio coverage. Hi, Mom. I love you. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. <laughs>